Hello. Here on with Nick and Fiona. It's not, it's not, I, I mean, I haven't been depressed at all. Welcome to The Playlist. I'm Fiona Williams and I'm joined by Nick Bassine. Nick, what are we talking about this week? This week, you had a chance to talk to Emma Thompson, who is the star of a new movie, The Children Act, which is a great movie. I loved it. We're talking about The Facebook Dilemma, which is a two-part documentary starting on SBS later this week. And we're talking about some of the big highlights that people can expect from SBS next year. And of course, what we've been watching. Let's do it. But first, The Facebook Dilemma. On college campuses, it's called thefacebook.com. From a Harvard dorm room to a global empire. Facebook is at two billion global users. Zuckerberg is an autocrat. He is the only one at Facebook who makes a decision. One of the things that makes entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley so magical is that megalomaniacal belief in themselves. Facebook systematically went from interconnecting people to essentially having a surveillance system of their whole lives. The big question is who has the power over that information? Is it going to be the users? Is it going to be the government? Is it going to be a couple of big companies? The problem is too big because Facebook is too big. There was very little sense of history. No no one understood that things might go badly. It chronicles how... Facebook began, what it was meant to be, and how it's become too big for its own good and for the the good of the world, basically. They got a chance to talk to some former and current Facebook employees and just people painting a very scary picture of not necessarily incompetence, but how slow Facebook is to correct big mistakes that are killing people in different parts of the world. Yeah, sort of this massive growth exercise that Facebook undertook and then some of the dodgy partnerships they made that have then resulted in all of these data breaches that, that we've been hearing yes. about in recent months. So this this comes from PBS in America. So it's, you know, the quality journalism that you've come to expect of their frontline documentaries. Yeah, it very expertly portrays a kind of uh, scary picture of what an unfettered, unregulated Facebook can do. All over the world, misinformation, the spread of misinformation or fake news has been used by people with uh, kind of nefarious purposes, and there have been riots. In Myanmar, the military used it as a tool for ethnic cleansing. In India, WhatsApp is being used to spread misinformation about people kidnapping children, and there have been riots, and people have been killed. And propaganda in, in Ukraine has been spreading demonizing one side or another of that conflict. And it just seems like Facebook can't possibly, or it's just, yeah, just can't control this stuff. And this documentary looks at the way, you know, the promise of Facebook was to create a more open and connected world. Right. But then the failure to protect data, users' data, raises the question, is it more harmful than helpful? So, you know, open and connected is one thing, but that can be wild and unregulated and it can lead to all sorts of nefarious deeds. You're on Facebook, right? I am. Did you get a pop-up, the window pop-up that said, do you find um, Facebook to be more helpful than hurtful, than harmful? No. I got a, uh, I got I? a little poll, a little survey. Mm. And I had to say, I think it's, I, I think, no, I think you're doing more harm than good. There, there was, was a, yeah, it was a survey. Saw that. Oh. A Facebook survey. <laughs> It's such a weird cold A or B yeah, yeah. kind of thing. But 
people just want to stay in touch with friends and family. That's what Facebook is good for. And I also, if I'm going to be on there and I'm going to be talking about how much I love this new brand of sneakers and you show me ads for those sneakers, I'm fine with that. Yeah, you kind of expect that kind of garbage. Yeah, yeah. totally fine. <laughs> but when you can't, you don't have translators who are aware of what the Myanmar military is, how they're spreading um, fake news, that's a huge problem. And this is an ongoing story. The New York Times had a hu had a blockbuster um, expose. Mm. About just last how, week. Yeah, just last week about how Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, how they both knew about the Russian trolling. Well, there were presentations to shareholders and to government regulators that were investigating it, were looking into it, but privately different kind of conversations were being had. And basically the internal whistleblowers were shouted at. <laughs> how could you know you're damaging our damaging yeah. our brand here? Did you watch any of those hearings where Mark Zuckerberg and I, I saw the reports of them. Yeah, they took place overnight. I didn't stay up to watch them, but uh, yeah, not not a great performance. No, but also- And I use the word performance On both sides, because it was clear that the government, the US government also has no idea of what Facebook is doing and capable of either. Yeah. So even government regulation, like who, you know, just who knows, who knows yeah. what the fix is here. Yeah. This major documentary, um, it looks into the, the series of warnings that Facebook was getting, you know, as it grew and it uses original interviews and rare footage to- examine what the company's impact on privacy is and on democracy. Yeah. Just so a little old <laughs> little old thing like that. So if you feel like getting freaked out, watch uh, watch the documentary. And comment about it on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> we all do it. So that's The Facebook Dilemma. It's on Sunday night on SBS and afterwards on SBS On Demand. Two parts. So next up, an Emma Thompson movie, The Children Act, was in theaters this week. My name's Fiona May. In court, it's my lady. I'm always too busy. The law can take over your life. You coming to bed? Mm. Is tomorrow the case? Okay. My lady, they're ready for you. Court rise. Fee, shall we talk? Excuse me. Long day. I don't know how to say this. I think... I think I want to have an affair. What? This one's based on an Ian McEwan novel about a family court, well, a high court judge in the UK, played by Emma Thompson, who is confronted with a moral, ethical dilemma, as judges are. And it's a decision about whether or not a boy who is on the cusp of turning 18, so almost an adult, whether the law should recognise that he is an adult and can make his own decision about his future in refusing a blood transfusion that has the potential to save his life. Doctors are recommending he take this blood transfusion, but he's rejecting on religious grounds. And his parents, who are devout Jehovah's Witnesses, are encouraging him towards rejecting the blood transfusion. So it's she's confronted with this dilemma about whether to overrule his wishes and his parents' wishes, and at the same time her own marriage is, is confronting a crisis and the two big moments in her life converge in strange and fascinating ways. I was not uh, prepared for this movie. I went in thinking I was going in for a um, very straightforward, tempered courtroom drama, mm. but it turned into something very different for me. It turned into a big lesson in cherishing life and what it means to be alive. I was in tears throughout most of this movie. Mm. Like she visits him in hospital and that has a profound effect on both of them. Normally these kind of cases are confined to a courtroom, but 
she makes an impromptu decision. It's highly unusual. She wants to go and meet the kid. And he's right. in hospital, you know, on the on the brink of death, which is why he needs this transfusion. And she's like, well, I need to see him for myself. And she up sticks and goes to the hospital room. And so they they share this moment that profoundly affects both of them and the momentum of the, yes. the story changes as a result of that. And I, I did not see where it was going. Mm. I didn't it there were so many emotional and plot surprises to me. The connection that they develop and the way that the world is opened up for him in a way that hasn't been before because he's mm. led this, I don't know if the movie's anti-religion, but it's a restrictive religious life that he's been leading. Mm. And suddenly it's opened up and the way it overwhelms him, it was just yeah. so powerful. And what Emma Thompson learns as a result of watching that unfold mm. and how she also learns to open up it was just so powerful. I loved it. Yeah, it is quite affecting. And I'm surprised by your reaction because I saw it quite some time before you did. I saw it a couple of months ago and yeah. I wasn't sure. You can veer towards being a little cynical about these kind of things. What? And I know, shocker. But uh, yeah, when you told me how moved you were, I was like, oh. Oh, man. And what? And Emma Thompson is so good. Yeah. I think of her as very good in general, right? She's yeah. in a lot of great movies and she does a great job. And she elevates a lot of eh, all yeah, right movies. Yeah, exactly. But somehow, like this was, I, th I thought, one of the best things I'd ever seen her do. Maybe mm. Sense and Sensibility also. I really liked that. Mm. I really liked her in that. But the journey that she goes on, just yeah. amazing. And I don't, th you mentioned you're not sure if it's down on religion. I don't think it is. I think it's more about elevating an individual. Like, it doesn't, I mean, it sort of does criticize the parents for yeah, following their bit. path, but also it's their choice. And I think the idea is is it this kid's choice? Is he, does he actually have the agency? To make this decision. Yes. Like it's just, is this really what he wants or is he trying to follow in the footsteps of his parents? Right. I mean, that's why the Children Act, the mm. law is in place. Yeah. And I think that sparks then her idea of her own agency within her marriage because her husband, friend of the show, Stanley Tucci, yes. expresses a desire to have an affair <laughs> because their marriage is in a bit of a doldrum. He believes she's a bit more married to the job than she is to him. Yeah. He doesn't want to cheat. He wants to be open about it. So then the idea of what's her agency yeah. when confronted with that kind of dilemma too. So I think it kind of just, that's that's the under, underrunning theme. She does such a good job of dealing with that and she's dealing with this horrible court case. She's got a lot on. There's a lot going on. Stanley Tucci could have been a little bit less hasty with that affair business. <laughs> he kind of just jumped into it. But anyway, I, I loved it. Great movie. I hope yeah. uh, she gets nominated for something. Speaking of the good lady, I was given the chance to speak to Emma Thompson about her role in The Children Act. Um, here she is. Look, it's a bit of a treat to talk to you, I have to say. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, thanks so much. <laughs> and um, congratulations on the film. No, it's, it's a pretty special one. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, Ian McEwan is obviously famous for his meticulous research of the worlds, um, mm. you know, that his characters inhabit. And I'm, I'm curious, did, did you want to take some, some of that yourself, a bit of personal research into, into Fiona's world? Oh, loads. I mean, that was the great, I think the greatest privilege of our job is that when you are playing somebody in a profession like the law or any profession, you get the chance to talk to people in that world. And, and they're very, generally speaking, very keen to talk to you because, of course, they want the world to be represented um, properly. Mm -hmm. And they want to. They want. They want their profession, you know, in that film to be represented properly. And and a lot of the time, it is deeply misrepresented. Um, 
not only the law, I mean, I can, I've, I, you see films about bad actors and think, oh, mm. for goodness sake, it's got nothing, it's nothing like that. So it was very important to me that in particular the female judges that I know and have made friends with were really properly shown if you see what I mean, that mm -hmm. I needed to make it as authentic as possible. So I spent time watching them work, but a lot of time talking to them on my own and finding out what it was really like to be a woman in that the male bastion, you mm -hmm. know. Fascinating. Yeah. And also we don't get to see female judges on screen very much. I mean, it's, you know, I'm trying to... Well, can name me one other <laughs> film where you've seen a female judge as a central character. Exactly. I'm racking my brains. There I you can't. go. Yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, you. <laughs> but interestingly, you know, the story that, for the, the idea for the book was from the lived experience of a male judge, wasn't it? That Indeed, his... it was. Yeah, yes. so interesting. He was on set with us the entire time. Oh, okay. And I, we learned a lot from him. What a, was such a wonderful man, very... Um, so I don't know how to put it. I mean, morally elegant and upright and dignified and decent and compassionate. I mean, a really wonderful, wonderful guy um, who was enormously helpful to us. But he did preside over that case. Mm. Um, and he did go and see the boy who had the transfusion and lived. But then later, the leukemia came back when he was in his 30s and okay. he refused the transfusion and died. Mm. So that's how that real life story played out. Mm, mm. And I think Alan was very much affected by that. Yeah, you would be. Um, well, you would be, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, you would. Obviously it did happen, but in terms of Fiona's experience within the film, what do you think triggers that unorthodox decision to, to go and, and meet the boy? Well, I think it's a raft of things, really. It's not just one thing. And the thing about playing somebody like this is it's never... It's never one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the fact that she's just finished on an extremely emotional case yeah. of conjoined twins, gone home and her husband's thrown a sort of emotional hand grenade into the marriage, has um, rocked her world, actually. Now, that this world that she'd been taken for granted for so long suddenly appears to be crumbling. And she can't, there's nothing she can do. She's duty judge. She has to take on this case. And then, and it's a life and death case. Mm. And so I think, I mean, my notion was that her defences, which of course you must have in order to survive the work, were just a bit shaky. And she's so convinced by the parents, by their emotional commitment, that she wants to show them respect. She wants to make sure that none of this is seen as, dis as discriminatory. Mm -hmm. um, that, that really it's an act of compassion for all of those people as much as it is the boy. That she wants to be seen to be taking this seriously. And I think that she also makes assumptions about the boy. I think she's not thinking about him, really. When she says she's going to go and see him, she's been convinced by the fact, you've got to talk to him, you've got to talk to him. So she's doing that, but she's, I don't think she's expecting much. And then she mm. encounters this sort of living flame and has uh, an interview with him. And if you think about the emotional background, backdrop to the interview, he's dying yeah. and she's got the power either to save him or 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 not. And that's mythical. Mm. You know, that's a scene from a Greek drama. Mm. That's like it's like Athena and Narcissus having a chat, you know, really at the edge of the world. 
And I, I think that's why the film so, was so much, so interesting to play. And so even though it's contained and the, and the environments are very sort of controlled, inside the scenes there's so much drama. Mm. Mm. And it's so intense. And Finn and I, you know, we, we had to laugh a lot to kind of come down off those scenes. Yeah, yeah it would have been quite heavy, I imagine. Yeah. It was pretty heavy. Mm. And the idea of ageing is a theme, obviously, in the literal sense, with Adam being a minor, but just barely, and, you know, he, you know yeah. only a couple of months shy, but also the urgency of the case, but also with Fiona herself and experiencing that uniquely female experience of ageing and, and having the fear of maybe being traded in for a younger <laughs> younger colleague of, yeah. of the husband. Yeah. yeah. Sort of dwelling on that idea of Fiona and what else is looming in her mind across this across these manic couple of days and that female experience of the time, the length of time. Mm. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I think that's something you can take out of that story. Mm. You know, um I funnily enough, I I don't think of it in those terms I didn't think of it in those terms as I was playing it. Sure. More like um she was being challenged. She's someone who's, through no fault of her own, got used to feeling perhaps omnipotent in some way, omniscient in some way. And so when she is challenged by her husband and then later by Adam, she doesn't deal with it well. Mm. She retreats from it. Instead of um, engaging with it, she retreats from it. And the results are as you see. And they're not good results. So it's something that you see her learning I don't think for a minute that she's thinking, oh, I'm being traded in for a younger model. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she thinks about it like that. I mean, even though it is, of course, a slap in the face and tremendously humiliating, mm. I think that's the key, is that in fact the humiliation is what is what makes her so angry. Yeah. Not the fact that he wants to go off and shaggy. I mean, she, if she thought about it for 30, you know, just for a minute and really, really looked at it, she'd go, oh, I get it. You know, because he's being incredibly honest and yeah. brave, actually. Yeah. Brave. Yeah, it's and bold. he says, and the way Stan plays it, because Stan's so consummate with his skills, the way he plays it, even though you think, oh my God, crikey, you you not only like him, I find, um, but you think, yeah, well, I understand why he's doing it because you can see that she just won't talk. She won't talk. And now we all know people like that. Mm-hmm. There are people who will not talk about what's going on, actually going on, you know. And um, it's just not a healthy place. Mm. Yeah, not healthy to be a partner to, to that. <laughs> no, mm. it's really not. Mm. It's really not. Mm. And, and like film, films such as this, you know, the intelligent dramas, that intimate settings, but big themes. Sadly, a bit of a rarity these days, certainly yeah. certainly English language ones, you know, there's some great yeah, Iranian absolutely. ones. You, you almost expect it to have subtitles, don't you? Yeah, it's kind of. Because yeah. it feels European. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what do you put that down to? Sort of, is it just a, a lack of boldness on the part of people who used to want to no, make them? No, it's a lack of money. It's a yeah. lack of money. Yeah. The film industry, um, the mid sort of price movies like these, Yeah. Um, are not being made by the studios anymore. It's incredibly difficult to get independent films made. And the market is flooded with franchises. Mm -hmm. I mean, franchises have taken over absolutely everything. It's always something number two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. You know, and, um, and whilst, you know, 
that's fine because there have been some really wonderful franchises mm. um, that have very much entertained us. And, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I've got nothing against that, but there's nothing else. And it's just the blockbusters. Mm. And, of course, that then what happens, and this is a Bill Bailey line, is that, is that films like this, or independent movies, small movies, get swallowed like a strand of saffron in a vindaloo. <laughs> nice, yeah. It's a good line, isn't it? It is a good line, yeah. I'm throwing that one myself. <laughs> yeah. And I guess on that, it, you know, it strikes me that we haven't seen you in a lead role for quite some time. Is that by choice? You've been off having a nice life off screen or, or producing actively? Um, or is it kind of a depressing confirmation of assumptions that we might have about? No, I've, yeah? I've, I've been, I, I've, um, I mean, we did Saving Mr. Banks in 2012. Yeah, that's about five or um, six years ago now, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then I played uh, two or three leads after that, but in small movies that you just may not have seen. Probably didn't come out here. And I've been writing. Mm. My daughter was at home and doing exams and everything, so I I work much less anyway. Mm. And it's not, it's not, I I mean, I haven't been depressed at all. I've really, really, I've I've done Sweeney Todd on stage Ah. for the New York Phil and then in London. You know, and things like that take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I don't take a role unless I really want it, really want to do it. Yeah. So, so, and there aren't many of those, no matter what age you are, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, but you're right, of course, it's rare. It's rare. Mm. to find a really great role at mm. my age. Oh, I mean, just broadly for women as well. Yeah, I wasn't Broadly for women as well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. Mm. Um, but this year, actually, I played a late-night talk show host um, written a script by Mindy Kaling. So I feel like there's been some really interesting lead roles. Recently. Of course, the other thing is that I've done a lot of smaller roles, and I, I like doing that too. Yeah. You know, I don't feel the need to be the lead all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, that's another thing, I suppose. That's another aspect to it. I haven't felt frustrated because I'm not thinking, oh, why aren't I, <laughs> you know, doing more massive roles? Sure. I couldn't do... I, I mean, I actually couldn't manage it, I don't think. It's too much. It would It would dominate your time, I would imagine, yeah. 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 Um, and you said you're writing. Is that is that film yes, work? Yes, I've or? been for the last two years. I've been writing a musical version of Nanny McPhee. Oh, great! Okay. Yeah, so that's been taking up a lot of time, and I've also written a romantic comedy, which a story by me and my husband Greg Wise, and we've been working on that for three or four years now, and um, we start shooting that in November. I mean, we're not in it, um, but the screenplay. Um, yeah. is going to be shot October, November here in London, directed by Paul Feig. So that's that's exciting. Yeah, OK. Well, I'm sure that one will come out here. Oh, yeah, that will, that will, because that's a rogue studio picture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, sounds good. Uh, you know, we're at the uh, Movies and TV Culture Podcast and we, lo- we like to ask our guests what they've been watching, you know, what's been on your radar lately, sort of loving or hating? What have you, what, what's keeping, what have you been? <laughs> well, what's been on my radar mm. is um, Hannah Gadsby, Nanette. Yeah, oof, absolutely. I saw her in Edinburgh last year, totally and utterly fell completely in love with her, with the writing, with thought of her. I mean, I think of her as kind of Promethean, godlike creature. I mean, she's just a world-changing phenomenon. And then I saw it again twice in London and and then again in New York. 
So um, I'm very familiar with it and I'm just so impressed and I, I just think that that piece of work is, is a sort of a life-changing, world-changing thing. Mm. I've been to um, the Guilty Feminist podcast, the 100th podcast, so Deborah Francis White, her, her Guilty Feminist stuff. I've been reading her book as well of the same name and I just did a day on Kathleen Moran's film version of How to Build a Girl. I've just been work, working and looking and reading younger women doing, speaking out and telling yeah. us what it's like to be them. And I feel like I'm hearing a lot of new voices and I'm very excited by them. Yeah, it's about time, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's understatement I of the century. When I go to Edinburgh, I just go and see women's writing, women's shows, because I want to know what, what they're thinking. Yeah. And to see Nanette take off as well, I mean, you know, incredible oh. that it was a show and a live experience, but to see the see the incredible outpouring of support for it, it's 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 heartening, isn't it, just to see it really that it has actually connected with, with men and women as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it's a fantastic sort of testament, really. Mm. Well, look, Emma Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on the playlist um, and congratulations on the Children Act. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty special one. Oh, I'm so glad you think so. Thank you so much for helping us get it out there because it's doing this that helps films like this get made. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, all the best. Thank you so much. Okay, cheers. Bye-bye. So that was Edna Thompson. How are you feeling? I'm good. <laughs> How are you? Uh, no, on the, uh, the point of this is the first lead in a while, I hope she didn't take that the wrong way. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, Johnny English Strikes Again didn't come up. Well, again, not the lead. And that was sort of the point I was trying to make, that this film, The Children Act, clearly a lead performance, which we haven't seen in a while. Like, yeah. Other than Nanny McPhee, she hasn't been the clear lead in the film. So that was the point I was trying to make. So The Children Act is now in cinemas. Next up, it, it's no secret that we work at SBS. And um, SBS uh, has TV shows. They put on TV shows on different channels. <laughs> And, Let's break some news. And um, the other day, earlier this week, there was what is called the Upfronts, where a TV network will present all of the exciting stuff that they have coming up in the following year. So all networks do it. It's yes. called the Upfront. It's exactly what you said. <laughs> Here's what's coming up. And it's yeah, it's a long list, like a shopping list of all the great things you can watch next year. So yeah, SBS yeah. had its turn this week. And there are a few things to be very excited. Well, there's a lot to be excited about. Um, for me, I was super excited to hear about 63 Up, the latest installment of the 7 Up series, which is just a utterly devastating film documentary series that I'm I can't get enough of. Yeah, I mean, I've seen them all and, I, you know, I anxiously await the arrival of the next instalment of The 7-Up. I can't believe we don't know what's happened to people now, especially, you know, social age. We wait for the next instalment of the film to find out how, yeah. how this group is. I love it. I'm there for it. Each and one kind of starts with a quick sequence of them as seven-year-olds, right, mm. just playing around. And even that, even that and cutting to them as 63-year-olds is going to just destroy <laughs> me. There's a bunch of big um, American shows that are coming back, like The Good Fight, which I really like, and The Handmaid's Tale. Which I really like. And um, I've got a soft spot for Homeland. It's its final season. I 
I'm looking forward to that too. You're going to farewell that too. We've also got a series, The Name of the Rose, which you may know as the book by Umberto Eco. You may know as the film with Sean Connery and Christian Slater, set in an Italian monastery in the, I want to say, 14th century. Now there's a series based on that same. Is Sean well, Connery? A murder in, in the monastery. No, Sean Connery has retired. Oh, that's a shame. But still watch it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'll still watch it. Yeah. Um, also on SBS Viceland is um, You're the Worst. The new season is starting, season five. I've been watching uh, starting from season one all the way up. Very excited about that. It's funny. One to four. Very funny show. You can catch up uh, on seasons one through four on, on SBS On Demand right now to prepare you for season five. Mm. And one big thing I'm looking forward to early next year, Eurovision, Australia Decides. First right. time ever. Uh, there's going to be some live events on the Gold Coast where we pick the artist who will represent Australia at the Eurovision Song Contest in May in Israel. So for the first time, Australia gets to choose who it is. So I am there for that. So those are some of the personal highlights. But if you want to know more about what's coming up in 2019, go to The Guide. That's at sbs.com.au slash guide. So now we come to the part of the show where we talk about what we've been watching. Fiona, what have you been watching? I have been watching Stan and Ollie, the uh, story of Laurel and Hardy. Very much looking forward to this movie. Manage your expectations. (laughs) I mean, make of it what you will personally, as was I, which is why I went to see it. It uh, recently closed the uh, British Film Festival Mm -hmm. in Sydney, so I went along to that. So played by John C. Riley. Love him. Yes. And Steve Coogan. Love Steve Coogan. Wait, Steve, which one is which one is which? Think of the dimensions. Okay. Steve Coogan's a little on the skinnier side. Yeah, okay. John C. Riley. I guess. He, with, with some padding, significant okay. padding. I see. All right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, love both of those guys. Uh, can't wait to see it. What do you got? Um, it's very good. And I'm probably gonna damn it with faint praise. It's the story of them in the twilight of their career, I'm going to say. Oh. Like it's a tour they did when they weren't filling the big auditoriums in the UK. It sort of it start it opens when they're at the peak of their powers in Hollywood, and then flashes forward several years to when they're not so much anymore, and they're doing a tour. You know, the not exactly box office gold in smaller auditoriums in regional areas. Heading, wanting to make it to London when there's a producer's going to be there and it's going to be, they're going to be big again. Right. <laughs> but are they? Uh, yeah, and there's a bickering between them. And so Oliver Hardy, John C. Riley, is having some heart issues, having some getting He was sweats. a larger man. He was a larger man and, yeah, didn't necessarily follow doctor's orders and was not well, was not a well man and uh, on this tour. So, look, it, it follows that. It's It's... A small film, you know, it's not a big, enormous set piece, period piece film. There's a lot of, it's all kind of inside hotel rooms and it's clearly shot in a studio and that's all fine. It's fine, fine, fine. Is, Is it, it funny? Yeah, no. I was going to ask if, it was, <laughs> if, it, if you laughed. I didn't. Was it meant to be funny? No, it's not funny. Like oh, it's right. a it's a serious film about funny people okay. in the twilight of their career. Okay. And that's fine. I just had hoped it would be better. Have you seen um, The Flying Deuces? No, I haven't. I maintain that that movie, that Oliver and Hardy movie, holds up. It is hilarious. Mm. I love it. I love Oliver and Hardy. Yeah. Well, you probably will love this. Yeah, I like them, but I'm not in any way as enamoured as probably you are. And, you know, there's nice moments where they walk past an Abbott and Costello poster and it's sort of, ah, 
Ah, those guys again. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I saw it. I just hoped it had been better. It's getting released later next year, I think. What have you been watching? Um, so I, um, I've gone into the vaults. Uh, my lady friend and I, because she hasn't seen the show, have been rewatching. I've been rewatching Breaking Bad from oh. the beginning. Jeez. We're in season, middle of season two, where Saul Goodman is uh, just introduced. We just watched his first episode. I, um, I, I think this is a great, great show. I don't love everything about it. I think there's a bunch of stuff in it that doesn't make sense, or certain characterizations that I don't. I don't think are all that deep or, or interesting, but um, what's great about it is, and, and experiencing it again all together in binge mode, is the expert way it ratchets up tension. Mm. Uh, just constant tension, and it all builds up to the end of the episode where something crazy happens, and and how are they going to get out of this? You wonder, and it gets better and better at that as the show goes on. Brian Cranston is just great, mm. and it's a, it's a, there's a lot of over the top. Some some of the there's some camp that I didn't notice before because he's just got this face on where he's just looking like you can see his transformation as he turns into a bad guy mm-hmm. on his face, and it's it's just lots of fun and uh, having a great time. Mm. So it was kind of tailor-made for streaming before streaming was a thing. Yes. Kind of made for DVD box sets, I guess, to be. Yeah. Much. Yeah. And yeah, and it's, I did, that's not how I watched it. I mm. watched it week to week yeah. when it was airing. And, um, but this, it's, it's a real pleasure. And I, it reminds me of what an exciting TV show can be when you get into it and you're thinking about it all day and you can't wait to get home and watch another couple of episodes and be back in that world. And it's, it's been a great experience. Mm. Yeah. Well, might I remind you for when Gus Spring enters the uh, enters the series to go back to, through the playlist to episode twenty one where I interviewed Mr. Giancarlo Esposito. That's right. Who could forget? He is wonderful. Is he in it yet? No. Right. <laughs> Well, that's it for our show. Make sure you subscribe to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, follow us on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies. I'm on Twitter at Nick Bassine. I'm on Twitter at Anything But Fifi. The Playlist is produced by Dan Barrett with editing and mixing by Jeremy Wilmont. See you all next week. Thanks for listening. Hey.